We are in the second part of a two-part series on the Invitational Church and wondering together about what it would look like for us to think of ourselves as the Invitational Community, welcoming people to come and explore with us uh, this great journey of faith. To that end, I encourage you to invite your friends to the last uh, segment of our series how can Christians talk about their country without getting into a fight? And uh, we've been looking at this the last couple of weeks, last couple of Wednesdays. This is our final uh, session on that. And so far, so good. We haven't broken out into a fight. So we, uh, we're shooting for three in a row on that one. So, but it is uh, a great and important topic for us to think about. And we encourage you to come and join us for dinner at 530 at the, Palm Center, at the Campus Center, and then following that, uh, our presentation at 6.30. So our texts today are both from the New Testament, uh, from first the Gospel according to John, the first chapter beginning at the 35th verse. Hear the Word of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he first found his si brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked him, where, what, what, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under that fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And then from the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, we read these words. How are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you will allow these words to come, to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen. If a tree falls in a forest and no one is in the forest to hear it, does it make a sound? The age-old scientific and existential question that appears still from time to time on college physics exams and remains good fodder for late-night debates at local diners. Google the question and you would be amazed at the amount of people who are out there still trying to answer it. In my research, I've come across a couple of companion questions. If a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, does it mean that my illegal logging operation will be successful? <laughs> or if a man speaks and his wife is not around to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest and no one is in the forest to hear it, does it make a sound? And in every test paper, every diner, every website, the answers, of course, break down into two broad categories. Both have to do with the nature of sound. What is the nature of sound? Is sound merely waves of vibration that simply travel through a medium but require no eardrum to receive it, no person to hear it? Or is sound not sound until it makes its way into somebody's ears, stimulating the auditory nerves and is heard? In other words, does sound have to be heard to be sound? Does a person have to be in the forest in order for a falling tree to make a sound? So I'd like you to hold on to that question for a moment, set it aside, and turn your attention to the picture on the cover of your bulletin. I should have warned you about this. The picture on the cover of your bulletin is a drawing that I came across a while ago. It's entitled Mickey's Self-Portrait. It was done by the legendary Disney artist Charles Boyer, and it's based on Norman Rockwell's famous painting, Triple Self-Portrait, that shows the artist painting himself. But there's a big difference between the two paintings. When Rockwell paints his self-portrait, what he paints is himself something we all would be inclined to do if we were to do a self-portrait. But when Mickey paints his self-portrait, what he paints is not himself, but the man who created him, the man who is in essence in him, Walt Disney. When Mickey looks at himself, what he sees is his creator, and what Boyer has done is that he's captured something deeply significant about life, something deeply spiritual, and it's about identity and gratitude. Mickey is who Mickey is only because of the one who created him, the one who resides in him. And what this painting expresses is that Mickey not only understands this, grasps this, sees this, but that his life, in a sense, is the grateful expression of this deep reality. You know, one of the great moments in life, one of the great epiphanies, is when you and I discover that so much of who we are has so little to do with us. We are not self-made people, right? We, when we paint the painting, 
Ideally, the image that appears on the canvas bears little resemblance to us. The truth is we are who we are because of the lives that have been lived into us. I am who I am because of the lives that were lived into me. I am who I am because of my mother and father and brothers. I am who I am because of my wife and daughter. I am who I am because a high school principal and a college chaplain made investments in my life. I am who I am because of great and loyal friends. I am who I am because of the countless parishioners who by grace have walked with me as we sought together to be the body of Christ. I am who I am because somewhere, and especially because somewhere, back in the beginning of time, God thought it might be a good idea to put me into the world. And while I have done enough things to make God sort of second-guess that idea, <laughs> nevertheless, God sent his son to tell me that there is nothing I can do or not do that would put me outside of God's love and that could keep God's presence from being inside of me. Now, here's the thing. When in my moments of sanity... I can see and sense the favor and presence of God for and in this rather imperfect, chipped, broken jar of clay named Steve McConnell. It allows me then to sense and see the favor and presence of God in everything that God has created. That when I encounter all the good and beauty of this world, I am able to see not only the objects of goodness and beauty, but I'm able to see the source and redeemer and creator that lie behind it. That when I see a siesta sunset, I see not only the image of the sun, but I see the source of the image. When I see a young person helping out an older person walking down the sidewalk, I see not only the gracious gesture, but I see the author of the grace itself. When I see an older person helping a younger person with a math problem and tutoring, I see not only the lovely gift of time and talent, I see the source of the love itself. When I hear a beautiful sonata performed on two pianos, I hear not only the exquisite performance of the artist, I hear the harmonic nature of the Creator. This is the wondrous gift our faith gives us, that we can take joy not only in the encounter, but that more importantly, we can give thanks and take great hope in the fact that these, these things of goodness and beauty are mere reflections and echoes of the one who creates us and redeems us. That we can be reminded time and time again that upon and within this chipped and broken and imperfect world, God still pours God's favor and presence. It is a serious thing, so wrote the recently passed Mary Oliver. It is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in this broken world. And we know this because our faith has given us the eyes to see and the ears to hear such things. We've been put into the forest of faith and we've heard the sound of good news. But when you're not in the forest, can you hear the sound? And if you can't hear the sound, is there really good news? 
which I suppose is the line of thinking when Paul talks about the grace and beauty of God in Jesus Christ and raises the point that all are not within the sound of such things. Or if they are, they are sure, they are not sure where this goodness and beauty comes from. That God so loved the world into being, and God keeps redeeming the brokenness we keep bringing to the world, but not everybody sees that. Not everybody hears that. Not everybody is transformed by that hope that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that this has been done. The tree has fallen. The gift is for all. Reconciliation has been accomplished for every single human being. And so, Paul says, so how are they to call upon this reconciling Jesus in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in one that they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim them? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? Good question. Which is to say that what lies at the core of this faith, which allows us to see and hear the echoes of God's love and all the goodness and beauty of the world, is this opportunity we have to invite others to see it for themselves. Come to the forest and hear the sound. Come to the fountain and take a drink. Come to the garden and smell the roses. When you encounter goodness and grace and beauty, the natural response is invitation. Invitation is not obligatory, something that we have to do. My pastor says, I have to invite you to church. <laughs> not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. Because what happens in this community, at least as I've observed, what happens in this community is a whole lot of goodness and beauty. We ain't perfect, and sometimes we ain't pretty, but there's still a whole lot of goodness and beauty that goes on around here. And what we get to do seven days a week is we get to connect the dots between the goodness and the beauty with its source, the Creator and the Redeemer. The beauty of an anthem, the goodness of handing out a bag of groceries, the beauty of a grief support group, the goodness of a tutoring session, the beauty of a Wednesday night dinner, and the goodness of mentoring at Wilkinson Elementary, the beauty of an, of an encouraging hug, and the goodness of an AA support group. On and on and on and on it goes. But how are they to hear without someone to proclaim? Come and see, is all the disciples said when some of them met the Messiah. Let me tell you, you should come hear this guy. He speaks beauty and goodness. No big explanations, no 10-point defense of the faith. Just come and see. Come and see for yourself. No different than telling somebody about the restaurant where you had a good meal or the concert where you heard good music or the movie that had good acting. D.T. Niles said that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. So I'm heading over to the Church of the Palms today. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm heading over to the Church of the Palms today because I typically find there things that are good and beautiful. Care to join me? 
It makes me think of that wonderful little poem by Robert Frost, his favorite poem, actually, entitled The Pasture. I'm going out to clean the pasture spring. I'll only stop to rake the leaves away and wait to watch the water clear. I may, I shan't be long. You come too. I'm going out to fetch the little calf that's standing by the mother. It's so young it totters when she licks it with her tongue. I shan't be long. You come too. When we see and anticipate beauty and goodness and behind them the favor and presence of God, what follows is invitation. You come too. So let me tell you a story that took place a long time ago, 30 years or so ago. I'm sitting in the dentist chair. And this dentist, to whom I've been going for a few years and with whom I had struck up a very good friendship, was not a churchgoer. He was a temple-goer, a faithful temple-goer. He was a conservative Jew, a deep, deep man of faith. And over the years of going to him as a patient and in socializing with he and his wife, I began to inquire about his tradition and his worship and his practice of faith. And before long, he began to inquire about my tradition and my worship and my faith. He knew, of course, that I was a pastor. So on this night, he had evening hours, on this night, as I'm sitting in his chair with his hands in my mouth, he's asking me, because it is December, he's asking me about what we do at Christmas. And I begin to explain to him, in those moments when he doesn't have his hands in my mouth, <laughs> I explain to him a little of what we do, you know, the carols, the services, the candles, the silent night. And he keeps asking me questions because he hears in my description something beautiful and good. And then all of a sudden I say to myself, you know, Steve, you know, instead of just trying to describe it to him, maybe you should just invite him. But then I say to myself, you know, you don't want to offend the guy. I mean, he's your friend. You can't really ask a conservative Jew to come to your Christmas Eve service, especially one with a drill in his hand. <laughs> so I wait until the final rinse. And as I'm getting out of the chair, I say with a lump in my throat and Novocaine in my jaw, hey, why don't you and your wife come to our Christmas Eve service and see for yourself? And this is what he said. He said, you mean you let me? Of course, I said. Anyone can come. So he said, I'll make you a deal. I go to your church, you come to my temple. I said, deal. And so he came, along with his wife and daughter, and they heard and saw beauty and goodness in those sweet carols and flickering light and sense the God that we saw behind that beauty and goodness. A few weeks later, I went to his temple, saw the goodness and beauty there, and the God of Israel behind it. A tree fell in the woods, and two men heard it. You know, I can't help but think that this weary old world becomes more hopeful the less we're worried about who's right and who's wrong. 
and instead become more interested in the beauty and the goodness. And behind the beauty and the goodness, the Creator, the Redeemer. Because you know, the more interested we become in these things, the more we cannot help ourselves but to say, you come too.